Well, welcome in everybody to another episode of the Educational Leadership Forum. That's what we're calling this, Seth, the Educational Leadership Forum. It sounds big time, doesn't it? Sounds very professional, way <laughs> above our heads. I don't know what we're doing here on that. <laughs> well, I'm trying to punch above my weight class here. Obviously. Yeah, yeah, me too. So thanks. Thanks for being here. And thank you all, all the students and everyone else who's watching. We have Seth Davis today. And we'll hold for applause and uh, just to, some background <laughs> on Seth, uh, born and raised in Connecticut before attending Duke University. Just a simple hand raise, Seth, if I screw any of this up, okay? Go for it. Uh, where it, he attended Duke University, so the Neil Perlmutter connection makes sense, right? I get that now. The light, I'm today years old. Um but not a degree in journalism, which may have come in handy, but majored in political science. Uh, in 1996, Seth hit the big time uh, writing for Sports Illustrated and has written on every major sports program, uh, including and, or, or it appears on every major sports program, including CBS and ESPN. Currently, he writes regularly for The Athletic while gearing up, gearing up for his analyst role during March Madness. Uh, he's authored uh, an untold number of articles covering football and basketball, as well as an impressive array of books on leadership and sports. Uh, I have a signed copy of Getting to Us, How Great Coaches Make Great Teams. I love that book, Seth. Uh, the um, uh, Izzo story about wanting to have tech on the jerseys so that he could send a text to him during the game. Would you, would you please play defense? Yeah. Yeah. Please guard somebody. <laughs> please guard somebody. Yeah. Like I, I still, I'll drive down the road and think of that quote and laugh. Uh, mostly I know Seth as uh, Melissa's husband and as the father of three boys, Zach, Noah, and Gabriel. We met his dads on the Robinson elementary fifth grade science camp trip. You, me, and Rob Stone. That's right. <laughs> and Rob everyone got, lived. Rob, Rob got stung by a stingray. Rob got stung by a stingray and got me hooked. Very on brand for him. Pepper sunflower seeds. Yes. Because why do you say it's on brand? Well, just because he, you know, he's so good looking and yeah. rich and famous and great at his job. So you just, you're a little bit happy that he gets stung by a stingray, to be honest. Just have a, a modicum of pain in his life is all I ask for. See, all of you out there. That was a pro answer. It was 60% compliment and then the lead right. at the end. Right. We're glad he got hurt. But it did make him the center of attention. Everything always works out for him. That's, so that's, he, that's why I wanted him to get stung. You, you were just trying to prop him up. Correct. That's good. Well, team play. Um. Our topic. So, did, how did I do? Did I get everything? Did I, Not everything, but mo enough of it. You got you got my kids' names right. That's important. <laughs> and recently inducted to the Sports Writers Hall of Fame. That's the U U.S. Basketball Writers Association Hall of Fame. Yeah. So okay. It's, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a narrow narrow thing, but it is my it is my thing, and it was amazing. And the best part of it was that Melissa and the boys were there at the. We have a breakfast, an awards breakfast on. Um, Monday, I want to say of the Final Four. It was Monday, the Sunday of the Final Four, and they they were there for it as well as was my mom, who had never been to a Final Four before, and so it all really worked out. It was great. Did you have to give a speech? Yeah, well, you know, I'm very shy, 
but I overcame that and I gave, a nice, I gave a very nice acceptance speech. You're a warrior. Did you cry? Didn't cry. Didn't cry. Oh. I was, I was, I was touched and I was honored, but. Okay. But, but you uh, held it together. Held it together. Yeah. That's good. I, I think I got proclaimed it a couple of times, um, but held it together. Yeah. How can you not? I think the key is don't look at your family while right. you're. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Dead center, back of the room, right? Yeah, very true. Very okay. true. All right. So that's tip number one today. Our our topic today, Seth, is the commercialization of college sports. And I have lots of questions. All right. First, uh, just to get us started, in your estimation, where did commercialization begin? Is it Sonny Vaccaro and Adidas Nike? Is it Magic Bird? Is it like when did college sports this whole commercialization begin? I think it began the first time two colleges played a sport. <laughs> I think it's as old as time. Princeton, um, Yale. Yeah, exactly. You know, there's a there's a great, um, I'm trying to remember the the title of it. Um, a book by Dave Revson, um, who's a buddy of mine. He's a he's a sports catcher. I'm looking this up on on Amazon. Um, the first kickoff, maybe Dave Revson is on, is on big 10 network. Anyway, it was, it's about the, the, the origins of, of, of college football. I, I, I think that commerce and sports and academics and the overall mission of a university, I think those have all coexisted since the beginning of time. You go back to the, the very first football games, the very first, you know, crew was, was a huge sport in, in college athletics in the early days. And it's always been about, hey, we want to win. Whatever the incentives might be, whether they were financial or prestige or ego, whatever it was, we want to win. All right, well, here are the rules. Well, some of these rules are kind of preventing us from winning. So how can we either bend the rules or exploit loopholes in the rules or flat out break the rules, whether they be admitting students who don't belong, paying people who aren't supposed to get paid because they want to win? And then how can we leverage that success in the athletic arena to benefit the mission of the university, whether it's a religious mission, whether it's a financial mission, whether it's an academic mission or all of those things. So I've always seen this all um, as happening at the same time. It just kind of manifests itself. Like we were talking, you mentioned about the thing about Izzo and text messaging. Well, like, you know, since the beginning of, of basketball, coaches have been telling players to guard somebody. Now they're just using a different set of languages. You can't tell kids you know, my way or the highway, the old Bobby Knight school, you got to, you got to meet them where they're at. And so I, I look at it all as, as, as very consistent. Now it's definitely the, the, the math has very much changed. And, you know, all of those points that, that, that you made, you know, the Oklahoma case versus the NCAA in the early 1980s that broke open the ability for universities to make television con contract negotiations separate and apart from the NCAA, which we're now seeing. You and I were just talking about the college football playoff. That's completely outside of the NCAA. And so you had that whole bowl system where you had people who were making money. Uh, well, why not go to a playoff? You'll make more money. Why not go to more than four teams? You'll make even more money. But it was concentrated in certain hands, controlled by certain people. And so once the math changed, that behavior changed. And yeah. so now we're in this incredible, to call it a disruption, Ben, is really a, a severe underestimate, underestimation. It's a complete explosion in the college sports spaces in terms of where these dollars are going, who they're going to, where they're coming from, who's deciding who gets what. That Have used they to be sorted that all out? Have they sorted? Oh, no. Oh, no sorting. No sorting. 
no sorting. <laughs> That's the beauty of it. That's the beauty of it. It's like, you know, Charlie Baker, the NCA just put out this proposal about basically going to pay for play and using NIL, but NIL doesn't exist. This NIL, people are calling it NIL. It's not NIL. It is pay for play. It is recruiting inducement. It could have been NIL. The whole NIL conversation, Ben, was always about let's get rid of these silly rules that keep Joe Smith from getting paid a hundred grand to do a pizza commercial or five grand to do an autograph session or what like to to exploit your name, image, and likeness in the marketplace. We went from none of that being allowed to these collectives which are basically organized but not controlled by universities and you know rich people and the alumni pulling their money into a pot and then deciding how to give it to players and how much and then deciding after that what the players need to do to earn that right wow. so it's been a complete explosion but like i say i don't think it's any different really since the 1800s um well before there was ever such a thing as as the NCAA so i think that really for your audience and your students the smart people you got one set of people, frankly, the older folks, Tom Mizzo is a great example of this, saying, well, that's not how we've done it. And that's not how it was. And look at all these, look at what it's doing to these kids and everyone's entitled and the transfer portal and no one wants to, you know, fight through adversity and all those, you know, lofty goals. The smart people are saying, okay, here's where we are. Here's where it's headed. How can I get a leg up on the competition? Not wishing things were different. But seeing where we are and then, as, as Wayne Gretzky said, skating to where the puck is going as opposed to where the puck is and then yeah. trying to get an advantage competitively. And look, every athletic department, every coach, it comes down to the same thing. Who's got the best players? Ben, you're, you're a sports guy. You're back. You are a coach. Give me the lousy coach with the better players over the better coach with the bad players every single time. So at the end of the day. You know, you could see coaches' salaries coming down. You could see athletic director salaries coming down. Whatever people have adjustments people have to make, the teams with the best players will win more, and that's always been the case. Wow, that's that's a lot, right? And what what do you think? This is an off the cuff question. So, what what do you think the benchmarks are? Like, how did how did so, so you named three entities, right? You named the sport, the university, and the the money, and however that looks. And, and I think in this case, it's we're looking at it as uh, advertisers and donors, right? In 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 that term of money, what are the benchmarks? Like, how how did we get to where we are now? So, like in my mind, I would say college football in the 1940s was when it really hit the big time. And then is the next is that the first benchmark? And then the the Colts Giants game in '59 is that another big event that? And, and then maybe Magic and Bird, and then Sonny Vaccaro, and then Oklahoma, and then like how would you map it out? I just made those up, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I mean it's it, it's interesting. You know, I, again, I see them. I see much more of a continuum okay. than a series of, of benchmarks. Now there are these certain inflection points. Like you mentioned that you mentioned the magic bird game. So we'll talk about that because I just happen to know a really good book about that game. So if any of your, any of your uh, students uh, have their credit cards nearby, feel free to go on Amazon or Barnes and Noble come wherever you get your books. I'm going to make uh, sure that that's the thumbnail for this. Uh, yeah, there podcast. you go. I appreciate that. It's called it's called when when March went mad. And so, you know, the Magic Bird game, 1979, Salt Lake City, 
I said, you know, well, it, it, it happened to happen at a point where everything was kind of set up, like the fire, all the wood was there and the kindling was in there. And so we just needed like a little spark to, to pop the flame, right? The, the, the biggest thing that was in place was the following September, ESPN launched. So we're talking about 1979. Now, if anyone knows the history of, of, of ESPN, it was this little public access all sports cable station in Connecticut that was only going to be local. And the guy, Bill Matt Rasmussen is his name. It's a great story about how he did this and basically kind of lucked into it. And I and I apologize if I get some of these details wrong. Basically what happened was, you know, he wanted to, he needed a spot on a satellite. I think it was an RCA satellite. And so he needed room on the transponder for his local television station. They were going to cover local Connecticut sports. And the folks told them, well, you know, it's the same dollar amount for you to get something that does this local as something that broadcasts it nationally. So you might as well just do it nationally because access to the satellite is what you need and it's the same money. And the guy's like, of course, well, I'll do it. Well, pretty soon after he did that, he had larger companies coming after him trying to buy that from him. And he, and he just his instinct said, well, this thing must be pretty valuable. If all these people want it, maybe I should ride with it. Now, you know, in the early days, I believe it was Getty Oil, who was the major investor in ESPN. My erstwhile employer, Sports Illustrated, had an opportunity to buy it, chose not to, I guess, figuring that cable TV was just a fad that was going to go away. And now Sports Illustrated has basically gone away. So, you know, by luck, by grinding, by necessity, you know, created this TV network. Now, September 79, not many people were watching it, but it but it was poised to grow over time and they needed programming. And for a variety of reasons, college basketball was a very easy property. It, they came in two hour blocks. They could build programming around it. It was kind of all over the country. It wasn't like super locked up. And so the early days of ESPN, there was a ton of college basketball. Early days of the NBA, this is kind of still in the dark ages of the NBA. You know, Magic Johnson had this game against Larry Bird, 79 final, 79 final, was rookie of the year in the NBA, had this incredible game six for the Lakers in the NBA finals. When Kareem was hurt, Magic filled in at center. I think he had 42 points, won the championship his rookie year, this iconic event. The game was on tape delay. Yeah. It wasn't even on live television. So the Magic Bird final between indiana state and michigan state is still has the highest nielsen rating like 24 24 means 24 percent of all tvs that were on that night were tuned into that game still yeah. the highest nielsen rating of any game basketball game college or pro in history and will never be surpassed why because back then there were four channels and now there's four million yeah so that's just an example uh, and then the other thing that happened, by the way, is the formation of the Big East Conference, which was a Dave Gavitt invention, which, again, aligned with this notion of taking something local nationally. So so all of those, you know, what you call benchmarks, they they didn't happen in a vacuum. Everything was kind of set. So you do have these sort of inflection points along the way that kind of kick things up. But again, I'll just go back to my original point is everybody's seeing talking about how different things are all of these changes, I'm seeing many more similarities that, hey, this is the same thing that was happening 100 years ago. It's just in a different way. And the math is different and the delivery systems are different and the contractual arrangements are different. You know, it's all the same. Everyone's just chasing the, the almighty dollar, which I think is is perfectly fine. I know I'm chasing it myself. Yeah. yeah. Could use it for. Yeah. I, and I, 
I think I would add as an inflection point, probably Jordan's Nike deal because yep. he, he hadn't done anything. And so for the first time, somebody's getting an endorsement deal who hasn't even scored a point yet. And then right. another inflection, and you referenced it parenthetically, it, Johnny Manziel, my guy, the whole kerfuffle over him signing autographs for money, which is, yep. that is NIL, right? And right. he was just profiting off of it before you know it was well i'll i'll, I'll take you back i don't know if you're, you're limiting this to college sports but a major inflection point was arnold arnold palmer and mark mccormick was the founder of ing and so arnold palmer you know kind of similar to a tiger woods many years later similar to jack nicholas but not as much was just this rakish cigarette smoking freewheeling oh, yeah. gunslinger on the links just as tv was coming online right so the political equivalent will be, you know, the, the Kennedy-Nixon debate where everyone's now watching TV and TV dinners so people could, you know, just put it in the oven and then sit in front of the TV and watch dinner. So Mark McCormick was this guy who said, hey, you're a great golfer, but because of your TV exposure and because of the way that you play and the way you look, we can leverage that in the marketplace. So that he basically launched an industry in sports marketing and IMG became you know, the, the most significant force marketing agency. More to your, what, what you're talking about, because you mentioned Sonny Vaccaro was a driving force behind the Ed O'Bannon case. So here's Ed O'Bannon played at UCLA and played a few years in the NBA and maybe didn't pan out the way he thought and didn't have as much money as he thought. I think he was working at a car dealership in Las Vegas, if I'm not mistaken. And he sees some kids playing a video game. He's like, huh, that dude is wearing a blue and gold jersey in the video game and he's black and he's bald and he's kind of tall and skinny and he's a lefty. He's got my That's number. <laughs> got my got his number. Yeah. Just was that O'Bannon. And he's like, why am I in a freaking video game? I, I need to be making money off that. Yeah. And then he looks and says, how come I'm making money? Well, because you don't own your name, image and likeness UCLA and the NCA does. So we're actually paying them to use you. And well, that's not right. And so Sonny, forced it on them. And so that he he won the case, not in the way that he wanted to perhaps, but they at least crossed the antitrust violation threshold. And now, you know, the whole world has sued the NCAA. And so, and, and I'll, I'll give you another reflection point. Uh, your former governor, Gavin Newsom, signing the first, I believe it was the first state law that basically said certain NCAA rules preventing athletes from leveraging themselves was illegal in the wow. state of California and any public institution that tried to for enforce that law was illegal. And so now all these other states are saying, Hey, if we don't, you know, we don't want all the good players going to California. So now you have all, all of these different states. And because the NCAA didn't get ahead of, of any of this, the only answer to all these different states having all these different laws is a federal law, which goes across all states. So who's going to save the day, Ben? Congress. <laughs> Congress is going to save the day. They Have you seen do. Congress? Have you seen Congress? They don't know what time of day it is in Congress, much less saving it. So now Charlie Baker is trying to show some foresight to say, okay, let's stop pretending that this is amateurs. Let's stop pretending that NIL actually exists and let's make it pay for play. And we're, and we're not going to make the rules, but we're going to tell the schools they can pull together the biggest schools and make the rules and compensate their players any way they want. And all these other schools, if you want to do this, let me let me add one more thing real quick. I'm sorry to ramble. Is no. people are saying 
so much of the argument against this, Ben, was now we're going to widen the chasm between the haves and the have-nots, right? By allowing schools to pay players, the bigger, more powerful schools are going to be able to pay their players more. Therefore, they're going to get the best players. Therefore, they're going to win more games, make more money, get the best players, and we're going to have a wide chasm. Okay. Has anybody seen the college football playoff over the last 10 years? Like, what's the total number of teams that I think it's been around, what, seven years, I want to say, eight years? Let's say it's eight years, 32 slots. 15 teams maybe have occupied those 32 for a while. It was the same three or four Clemson, Ohio state, Alabama. Now, George, look at the four who are in there, you know, I mean, so it, it's just, I mean, Appalachian state is not in, in, in the playoff, you know, it's, it's always been the case. So every dumb rule you've ever heard from that comes out of the NCAA about how much cream cheese you can put on your bagel and how much money you can spend on the per diem for a recruit, all these silly rules were put in place because you have 360 universities being able to vote on them and everyone's trying to level the playing field. The playing field, back to my original point, ever since the first toe hit the first football, the the the, the chasm between the have-nots and the haves has existed. It will always exist. And we should stop making rules to prevent that from happening because it's always happened. Wow. My, my next question was going to be, what are your feelings on the portal and NIL? <laughs> but I think, you know, you, you just see it as a continuum. It's just a different, it's just a different face on what's always been happening. Right. Well, well, I'll tell you the biggest difference right now is the players have a lot more power. Okay. Players have a lot more leverage. If you want to cuss at your guys, be my guest, but you better make sure that they're getting the message. Some kids like to be cussed out. A lot of them don't. A yeah. lot of parents don't like it. I don't like it seeing my kids get cussed out. Yeah. So, like, hey, you want to? Hey, hey, I apologize yeah. for that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I know, Ben. You're a little <laughs> out of line. You're a little out of line. Um. So, hey, you better like it. My way or the highway. Like the player might be saying that to the coach. Now, again, it's it, it is a dynamic relationship, but players can now leave. And players can negotiate for higher value. Now, again, they have a calculation to make about money. Like, okay, school A is going to pay me X. School school B is going to pay me 2X. But school A has a really good quarterback. And school B doesn't. So I'm probably better off taking less money so I can play. Or I don't like that. So... The money is not going to drive, if money's going to drive every decision, you're probably going to end up making the wrong decision. And that's part of their education. How to handle money is a great part of their education. So that to me, Ben, is the biggest difference right now is that pendulum is definitely swinging back towards the players. And I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I really don't. I mean, I, you and I have had so many conversations about youth sports and club sports. These kids are hopping from team to team. Coaches are hopping from team to team, club to club. My kids, get cut you know my kid you know my son Noah he's a soccer goalie now playing for for, for Miracosta he was like 10 years old and the coach cut him because he was too small I'm like he's freaking 10 like what are we what are we even doing so by the time they get to college don't tell me about sticking through things this is this is the world that we're in yeah. and you know if you're a good coach and you're a good person and you treat people well and you run your program the way it needs to be run 
good players will want to play for you. You will win more games and you will get paid more. That's how it works. Dang it. That was my next question, but I'm going to see what else you got. I'm going to dig a little deeper. Talk to the old school coach who's living in this transformational world. Talk to the old school coach and the new coach. What do they either need to change or what do they need to do? Like what, what's the strategic plan for today's coach because of, of what you said, right? Kids can just enter the portal. Kids are looking at NIL money, exposure, et cetera. So now I'm a coach trying to build a team. Let's keep it to basketball. I've got 12 slots. Talk to me. I'm a new coach. Okay. Well, let's have another book club suggestion. <laughs> I know another book. I take this is it's it's a little heavy. It's a little heavy. Okay. Yeah. I'm not gonna lie. It took it took me a minute. He lived a long time. This is I'm I'm sorry, my screen is is so weird here. This yeah, is a oh. biography of John Wooden. Okay. It's just his face, which is awesome. Yeah. Wooden Wooden <laughs> coach's life. So okay. read that book because I mean the man the man won 10 NCAA championships, right? And so I, I think what you want to do is learn things that are timeless, learn things that are true in 1840 and learn things that are true in 2023 and are going to still be true in 2043. Now, John Wooden was not, was not contrary to what people think. He was actually not a saint. He was actually not perfect. He was a, a very insecure person, as many high achievers are. He had his moral strictures, but he also compromised on some things, most notably the involvement of a, of a prominent booster who was paying his guys and, and blatantly violating NCAA rules and he kind of had a holier-than-thou attitude about all that. So this is not about his perfection. But here's what John Wooden did amazingly well. He was a true lifelong learner. And many of his most significant wins happened after he was through coaching because, Ben, you and I are parents. I imagine a lot of your students are parents. It's amazing how much smarter our own parents get <laughs> as we age and have kids of our own who think we're schmucks. Uh, not incorrectly, I might add. So many of Wooden's players did not particularly like him because he was kind of emotionally distant. He came from a different era where you didn't, you know, touch people's emotions. And that's why his players turned to Sam Gilbert because he was not able to relate, uh, particularly to his black players, you know, a, a, a black high profile athlete in Los Angeles, California in the late 1960s with everything swirling going on, civil rights, Vietnam, counterculture, all of that. He he just wanted to, you know, coach basketball. So he struck an amazing balance between understanding what shouldn't change and should never change and is timeless, but then also where he needed to adapt. And he always looked for ways to adapt. So when you talk about old school, I, I see it as one school. And that is you must always be learning. You must always be growing. You must always be adapting. Uh, I'm not going to pull out the book, but you mentioned getting to us. There's a chapter on Coach K. I think Coach K is the best example that I've ever seen at the age of 74, 75, still being able to relate to 18-year-old kids. One of the things that he did was made a point of listening to their music. Mm -hmm. What are you listening to? And then he would listen to it. And so he might be talking about ball screen defense and throw in like a Jay-Z lyric. And his kids are like, look at coach. He said, like finding ways to connect, not, Hey, I'm Mike freaking Krzyzewski. Let me show you how many trophies I have. 
Let me show you how much money I have. Like, I'm going to tell you what to do and you're going to do it. And that's how it operates around here. And if you don't like it, there's the door. That's not how he rolls. That's not how he rolls. He's constantly adapting. He won a championship in 2015. He had this real young team. He had this big lumbering center uh, in Jalil Okafor. And he's a guy from the Bob Knight school where all you did was man to man. And he's like, everyone's putting this guy on ball screens. They're, we're, we're, they're killing us. And he's a freshman and he's leaving in a couple of months. I don't have the time to teach him how to do this. What am I going to do? Zone. Yeah. Started playing zone. And he won his fifth national championship. So I would encourage your older students and old, all the old school coaches not to think of themselves that way. Think of themselves as, as being a student, meeting your players where you are and really thinking about, well, that's how we did it five years, like the, the haircut thing and we no tattoos and Maybe we could relax on some of that, but that I'm not, that I'm not relaxing on, but taking the time to get to know your kids, you know, you, again, like I said, you can light them up, you can cuss them out, but you better bring them into your office, better put your arm around them and they better understand that you're doing it out of love. You know, one of these, the phrases that I think about it, it could really be a great title for a book if I could ever find the time in my also empty life. Pure, how about this for a phrase, Ben? Pure intentions mm -hmm. pure intentions you 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 live a life of community service in your lds your mission work and you're being an educator truly being of service do you look at your players do you look at your employees as people who you're going to order around and try to get, or are you truly living in service for them do you truly want what is best for them if your player has a decision to make whether he, he should turn pro and you're trying to give him advice. Are you advising him to come back because you need him to win games because you're afraid you're going to get fired? Or are you going to truly give him the advice that is best for him? That's a hard thing to stick with, mm -hmm. pure intention. So being adaptable, being open-minded, being a lifelong learner, being empathetic, taking the time to get to know your players, keeping your intentions pure, living a life of service. It keeps you in a good headspace. It's a better way to be kindness and compassion, but it helps you win more games. And that's yeah. a message I try to get across in my writing that, you know, being kind, being compassionate, being empathetic, being open-minded, being adaptable, it actually helps you win more games and make more money. It's crazy that a, a lot of the papers that I get in from the athletic uh, administration students, they're talking about all these other things other than practicing games. You know, they're talking about, you know, teaching life skills, uh, character education, fitness and nutrition and agility, conditioning and strength work and academic assistance. And I mean, it's th these coaches, we, we need to I'm on a mission to not be so hard on them because they're they have a lot of plates that are spinning, a lot of balls in the air. And these poor guys and the coaches, the men and women coaches for those. Oh, I want to I want to tell you this story before I get to. I want, I want you to explain to us what NIL actually is for those. Yeah. <laughs> but before I get to that, as a coach, how do we deal with this? I saw an interview with Andre Iguodala, and he was talking about the last team he was with. He was making the league minimum. And they were in the conference championship to see who went to the NBA finals. And it came down early in the third quarter, and the player on the other team was killing him. And coach calls timeout, calls him over, and he says, Andre, we need you to shut this guy down so that we can win this game and go to the NBA finals. And on the interview, he said, I looked around and I'm the only guy 
on the bench that's making the league minimum. And he's got these max contract guys. They can't shut the guy down. He needs me to do it. And in my mind, I'm going, nah. <laughs> the organization isn't max behind me, but they want me to max this guy, you know? Right. So now you're a college coach and you've got the blue chip five-star that you brought in on this NIL money and you're in a timeout and you got 11 guys that are on scholarship and one guy that's pulling down seven figures of NIL money. How do you motivate the other 11? Like, what does that do? Sure, we know what it does to this kid that's getting the NIL. He's worked hard to get it. But now what do you do for the other 11? What's that psychology like? Well, these are great questions. And it's 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 amazing we've, we've gone this far without mentioning a, a highly, highly important word, which is becoming extremely exponentially more important in today's environment. And that is culture. Culture is something that takes time. And it takes intentionality. Like you have to know what culture you're trying to build. Another, I know I love plugging my own books, but I, I forget who it was, but you know, a lot of coaches have read my, my books don't sell great, but a lot of coaches read my coaching book that you referenced. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to think, it may have been Paul Mills, who was at Oral Roberts and is now at Wichita State. It may have been somebody else, but somebody said, I really liked your coaching book. And it was telling me, and I'm obviously very flattered and gratified. It feels I good, that. right? Yeah. I had I had hours to listen to him, but I asked him a question. I said, "So, what's your what's your biggest takeaway from the book?" And he said, "He said my biggest takeaway is there's a lot of different ways to get there, but you better have a way, mm -hmm. right? So you got to really think like, what's important to me? What's my culture? What type of system am I comfortable playing in? Am I comfortable coaching? Do I want to be like a Tony Bennett where I'm grinding teams sixty to fifty five, or do I want to be a Nate Oates?" where we're flying up and down the court trying to win 95-90. Either way, you have more points than the other team, and it's fine. So what do you know? What's your background? So what's what's consistent to your vision? My my The book is talks about the peak uh, profile, persistence, empathy, authenticity, knowledge. What culture is authentic to you? So you got to really think about that. And then you must be fiercely protective of your culture. So you want to bring people in. Well, this guy can score a little more, but um, he's going to hurt the culture. And like, okay, we have this type of personality that's going to be a high maintenance guy. Do you have a locker room full of high maintenance guys? Or do you have like one of those Villanova locker rooms where you have older guys, veterans, rock, you know, rock of Gibraltar type of guys, rock of stability. So we can bring in, for lack of a better word, a knucklehead a recovering knucklehead because I have older guys who can set him straight. You can't have a locker room full of those guys, but you can have one if he's good enough. Yeah. <laughs> if he can get you 20, you're not, you'll not, your knucklehead tolerance goes higher. If he's not very good, well, why would you have him? So these are all calculations and all decisions that you have to make. So bringing guys in and out of the program, it's very transient. And, you know, People talk about, you know, players leaving, bringing in transfers. I think that one of the hardest decisions a coach has to make is a player that's already in his program. Do you go to the, and is maybe not producing yet. Do you bring in a transfer to play over him? In which case you might lose him. Or do you say, you know what? I can get him better. And he's here for two years. I want that continuity in, in my program. Like I mentioned Tony Bennett and I'll, I'll be, very candid about this conversation because I, you know, they've, they've had some down years and he lost a player in a guy's name is Isaac Trout. He's from Nebraska, Isaac uh, Strout from Nebraska, went to Virginia, redshirted his freshman year, was getting ready to play as a sophomore 
and transferred back to Creighton. And Tony was like, oh, you know, these guys aren't pushing through. But Tony had some guys the previous year, and he went into the to the portal. One of the guys, Caden Shedrick, transferred to Texas. He was going to be a senior. He was going to have minutes. And it's like, well, you know, he just stuck through, and now is his time, and now he's he's leaving. Well, the reason why he didn't play last year is because you went and you brought in a transfer who took his spot. And he lost his starting spot because you needed to win games and you had a guy that you had brought in. So you didn't stick with him. So not saying that's wrong, but I'm just saying it's 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 a two-way dynamic. So, you know, but I, I think knowing what you want your culture to be, knowing who fits your culture, can advance your culture, who can teach your culture. And let me let me add this final point, Ben, because a lot of people have made this point about NIL. And again, this is where I say, you know, the old Hebrew expression, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I don't know the Hebrew words, but that's what it is. There's nothing new under the sun. So, well, all right, so we have all this money. I don't want to have one guy in my locker room making 500 grand and everybody else is making 40. That's going to divide my locker room. I say, well, okay, 10 years ago, you were going to say, well, this guy's playing 39 minutes and getting 15 shots and averaging 18 a game. And that guy's only getting three minutes. And I'm t- I told him, if you shoot, I'm taking you out. Yeah. That's a division. Yeah. That guy earned it. And if that guy says to me, well, how come he's playing more than me? He's better than you, bro. <laughs> well, he's getting more shots because he's a better shooter than you are. Get your butt in the practice, Jim. Get your reps. I mean, wouldn't used to say this to his players all the time. Well, how come Al Cinder gets this? He's better than you. And you should be lucky you're on the same team with him, by the way. He yeah. said, fuck it out. If we only have one good pair of shoes, Lewis is getting the good shoes. Right. So that's not treating everybody equally. That's treating everybody fairly. And I don't see why the money has to be any different. It's like, yo, you want to make more money. And by the way, son, you're making more money than everybody here. You better produce like you now have more pressure. If we win, great. You're going to get celebrated. If we lose, guess whose fault it is? Not his. He's only making 10. So I just think this is all about managing personalities, the communication. I can't tell you. Ben, and I'm covering more and more NBA, especially at the professional level, how bad the communication can get sometimes between like somebody should be communicating with Iguodala about like, he's like, well, you know, if I'm, if I'm the most important defender here, how come I'm making the least? Yeah. Right. Well, he he needs the answer to that question. And then it's like, well, Andre, do you want to be here under these circumstances? And if you don't, that's fine. Don't take the money. We'll have to sign somebody else. And maybe he's on the opponent and he's going to shut down our guy. And we're going to be like, should have paid him more. Right. Ball don't lie. Ball don't lie. Scoreboard will tell you who's got, I was at the Bronny game last night. You know, I was all Bronny and this and that. And they're, they're upset. How about poor Andy Enfield? He's got LeBron in the house. Everybody's watching. They're playing Long Beach state. Bronny was terrific. He's such a sweet kid. They're up 17 with 45 seconds to go in the first half. They're 15 at halftime. And they ended up losing in overtime. Wow. And they were terrible from the foul line because he had a couple of guys who tried to put on a show instead of winning the game. But scoreboard don't lie. And and Long Beach State was 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 the better team. It's the beauty of sports. That is, how much influence do the athletic administrators have? Is it something that's happening or am I making this up in my head where I'm a head coach, I'm putting my roster together for the following season. You know, I'm looking in the spring, at the following fall, summer. Athletic administrator comes in and says, hey, there's this kid, and we didn't think we could get him, 
but we think we can get him and we have enough NIL money to get him. And maybe as a coach, I'm looking at my culture thinking that kid doesn't fit in my culture, mm -hmm. but he's this five-star kid that the athletic administration is behind and the boosters have come. You know, you know what I'm saying? You know, the pain. Yeah. Yeah. Right? yeah. So is that something that is likely to happen? And if so, like, how do we sort that out? Well, you know, the best leaders hire the best people and then empower those people to do their job. At the end of the day, the coach is going to get judged by those numbers on the scoreboard. And I actually get frustrated with this. I don't know your, your folks on this in this class might not want to hear this, but I'm like, okay, like Frank Wright just got fired first year. Yeah. Who hired that guy? And maybe it's can you fire the owner? But like I, I see this in, in college sports where guys get fired after one or two years. Like, why is the guy who made the hire <laughs> still have his or her job? Yeah. But the coach, the coach is always blamed. And so I find myself instinctively defensive of coaches and maybe to my professional detriment, you know, because I see what they go through. I see what they go through emotionally, mentally, psychologically. I've talked to their wives, talked to their kids. Well, he's making four million a year. Yeah, yeah but his third level assistant isn't and his video guy isn't. And when you fire a head coach, all those people lose their jobs. And their families are on social media and their kids are in school. And so um, they're dealing with a lot. They're dealing with a lot. So I would say, to be honest, as an, as an AD or associate AD, if you go to your head coach and say, well, what about, you know, some of our boosters and we can do NIL and we can, you know, you want this player. If you don't trust that coach to make the best decision for his program, then, then, You've got the wrong coach. I think it's I think it's the administrator's job to support the coach. And sometimes that means coming down on them. Sometimes that means course correcting. Sometimes that means saying, hey, look, it's not going well. This I'm sorry to tell you, but this is a big year for you. You know, like you got to, I know that happens. And at least we're being honest. Yep. Um, that's okay. But at the end of the day, support your coach. Trust him or her to make the right decisions, the best decisions for them. Give them as much rope as you can. It's not infinite. Give them as much time as you can. It's not infinite. Infinite. Let it play out. Let them make mistakes. We very much underrate. We were talking about Sark. You know, Quinn Ewers went through all this sort of personal development in the offseason. He lost weight. He cut his hair. He's, you know, is in great shape. And, well, he's going to be better. But, you know, I would hope Steve Sarkeesian is a better coach now than he was last year. I think we underrate, you know, coaches make being able to – it's like a, a point guard, you know – you got to live with your turnovers. Let them make mistakes. Learn from their mistakes over time and, and, and empower them. So I, I would think, Ben, to be honest, the opposite happens where the, a coach really wants a player. Yeah. And he's like, we need more. We need more buck. We need more Benjamins, man. He's going elsewhere. So how can you help me get the finances together and get our programs in a place where we can compete financially in recruiting? Because that's, like I said, that's never what NIL was. That's why NIL is, has actually never existed in the way that people use it. Support your coaches, and that means trying to get your dollars together to to get the guys that he needs to win. What's it, la, la, last thing I know you've got to go, uh, what's it going to take for the NCAA to sufficiently define NIL and give it a structure? What's it going to take? Well, you know, I think that Charlie Baker's recent proposal is probably the best the best I've seen in covering the sport in an effort to actually fix a problem proactively and not 
reactively because there's a couple of lawsuits making their ways in the courts about whether these athletes are employees, whether they can unionize and collectively bargain. And it's like, hey, you know, if they're employees, first of all, they're paying taxes on this money. And by the way, if they are professional, can you trade them? Because every pro league on the planet provides for trades. And so basically, like I said, NIL was about allowing athletes the freedom to capitalize in the marketplace. We went from that not remotely being allowed to not only that being allowed, and that does happen, they all have agents striking these deals, but basically the heart of NIL is these, they're using these words collectives, which mm-hmm. is let's all get a big pile of money together and figure out how to give it to the, the players. And that's pay for play. That's recruiting. That's not NIL, but we're calling it NIL. We have an NIL collective. What, what the heck is that? So what Charlie Baker's basically saying, okay, let's take these NIL collectives and let's just make it straight up pay for play. And here are the dollar maxes you can go to, but we're going to take, we're going to create a new division, whatever he's calling it, you know, with these F- FBS schools, as opposed to the FCS schools, which they've already kind of done, by the way, they call it the autonomy five. Um, and th- this was about stipends, living stipends, cost of living, cost of attendance is what it's called. And that's a federally set state by state. Here's what it costs to attend school. In the, in at the University of Texas, here's what it costs to attend school at BYU. Setting that number, that's how much the schools are allowed. So that was originally the 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 big conferences broke away so they could give their uh, student athletes cost of attendance money. So it's basically the same thing. So they're right. they're they're and if they basically they basically resign themselves to the fact that Congress is not going to bail them out. So you know the NCAA president has no ability to pass legislation, no ability to vote on legislation. He's like the Secretary General of the United Nations. He could just sort of create a, a dialogue, but he did put pen to paper and say this is how it would work. These are the conferences that are allowed to do this. This is the structure that would uh, that would govern it. And all of these other schools, you don't have to do this, but you can if you want. But these schools definitely are allowed um, to do this. And let's get all these rights monies and this latest round, like this, the Big Ten, you know, and then we haven't even talked about conference realignment. I mean, it's like the hypocrisy, the hypocrisy of coaches and schools complaining about the transfer portal and then going and then blowing. I mean, we watched we watched a a conference vaporize before our eyes within a 48 hour period because everybody scattered chasing TV dollars. So these rights money, these rights dollars are going up and it only makes sense that the the players on the field should get more of it. So however, however it falls into place, Ben, I'm glad that those dollars are going into those hands because that, my friend, is very, very long overdue. It is. Why, Why not just make it true NIL? If you come to our school and you sell a jersey out of the fan shop, you get X percentage. Or right. if if while you're here, our gate receipts reach a certain level, then you're incentivized because of your right. play and putting butts in seats. Why not? If we run an ad campaign that has your face on it, why not just make it true NIL? Well, we... we, we... We skipped right to where it was always going to go, which is pay for play. And by the way, you can't sell someone's jersey if he's not in your program. So first, you got to put the dollars together to recruit him to come. Okay, so it's like that's not nil. Yeah. Well, the, again, I think nil is is a misnomer because because yeah. we 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 went from nothing being allowed to everything being allowed. So yeah, 
they are getting compensated for jerseys. They are able to, you know, uh, Caleb Williams, the USC coach, is uh, USC uh, quarterback, is in these commercials, and I mean, you see these these athletes in commercials and getting paid for it. So that is happening, but that the schools aren't doing that. They, they just got rid of the rules preventing that, and that was what it was supposed to be all along. But you cannot have this incredibly mushrooming and growing pot of money coming into the system and and not have it go to the players yeah it's just it's just gravity man and and so it's either going to be done because keeping it out of their hands whether keeping them from from unionizing keeping them from uh becoming employees and establishing those employees whether either because it's illegal and you're going to get sued for violating the law or it's not illegal and the people who make the laws are going to change the laws to make it legal. So one way or an, that's what I mean. Like it's inevitable. It's just gravity. And so forever, no one in college athletics, no one at the NCAA, and we could do an hour on exactly what is the NCAA. And this is the school is the membership organization, USC, Texas, UCLA, Florida, Alabama, Michigan, uh, Central Florida. They're those, that's the NCAA. It's really not Charlie Bake, but you know, basically it's it's just long overdue. Any business, any leader, again, the old Wayne Gretzky thing, you don't skate to the puck, you skate to where the puck's going. For the NCAA, like they don't even know that like the puck is there, right? Yeah. You get hit in the head with the puck. Oh my God, who put a puck on the ice? There was a puck. Oh, who knew? I got the skates, <laughs> I got the stick. Who, who knew there was a puck here? Now they now they see the puck. They're kind of looking at it. They're trying what to do What do we do with it? <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Do you see? Do you see uh, contracts coming? So, okay, you want to come here? You want the NIL money? You got to sign. This is a two-year deal. You got to stay with us for two years. You know, I, it's 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 anything is possible. Any, any, anything is possible. I, I think the bigger question would, would be trades. Like if you own somebody's rights, can you trade them to another school? Like that might be, yeah. I mean, it's like, you try to explain to people that like, this doesn't exist anywhere else on the planet. You know, like you tell no. someone, in, you tell someone in England that on on a football Saturday in Ann Arbor, Michigan, there's 110,000 people in the stands to watch 18 to 22 year old amateurs play football. Like they think they think we got screw loose, right? Or and Bolivia do, or Ecuador, and, and yeah, I mean, in in a, in a good way, in yeah. a good way. So it's you know, it's building a mousetrap with no with no blueprint. Well, that's how they did over there. And, and this, everyone always said, well, you know, like the Olympics. Well, you know, the Olympics for a while was amateur and then they went pro. Well, but the Olympics doesn't recruit, right? So like the people who make the U.S. track and field team in the 100 meter dash are the people who have the top whatever four times at the trials. And it's made so, the Olympics better. It has. But but my point is that the, you know, there's no recruiting in the Olympics. Yeah. So it's not like, well, if we get money and we can. If we spend more money for this, like, like if we gave Usain Bolt yeah. more money than uh, Jamaica did, he's Jamaican, right? Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. Well, but but not, not now. He'd be USA. That's right. So okay. it doesn't work. So th there's no, there's nowhere to say, okay, here's what college sports to, we should do it like them. That doesn't exist. There is no them. So it's 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 a lot to figure out, but that. Um, you know what, man? At the end of the day, the games are so good that they overcome all of this. And that's what I try to tell people in our industry, man. It's like, you know, my buddy's been working all day, 
His boss is mad at him. His wife isn't talking to him. His kids are a pain in the butt. All he wants to do is sit on his couch and watch the Red Sox. Yeah. It has to be yeah. Red Sox. No, it has to be Red Sox. If you that's a so. Boston story, right? There you go. <laughs> yeah, well, just like, yeah, just like just want to watch. It's just entertainment, man. So, like, whatever's going on with the with the money and the this and the realignment, like, oh, the 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 USC, the the, the Pac-10 is gone. First of all, it used to be the Pac-10, now it's Pac-12. Where was the tradition there? Okay. So you're gonna watch the USC Michigan game. It's gonna be a Big Ten game. You're gonna watch because you have nothing. Else, you have nothing better to do. I know I don't have anything better to do than watch. Well, in LA, it's the Tesla's charged. I got my Starbucks. There you go. I've walked my French bulldog. Right now, now I want to watch the game. Watch the game. That guy deserves to see the game too. Exactly. Hundred percent. Thanks, brother. Man, uh, so so much here. So good. I hope uh, it helps your students. I hope so too. Who who's going to win it all? Who looks good early? Well, I mean, it's it, it is early, but you know, I would say, uh, you know, Arizona is a clear number one. I mean, they're really. I actually was talking to Tommy Lloyd yesterday morning. Uh, he was between pickleball games he about how he builds his game too. <laughs> yeah, 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 and you know about he he put together this he put together this really challenging schedule without knowing who was on his roster because he didn't have the answers from the transfer portal. You know, you got to commit, you got to commit to games before. So they've been super impressive. You know, I'm rooting like heck for Purdue. They lost in the first round last year and uh, Matt Painter is such a good guy. And that, and that fan base is so star crossed. They've, they've been, they've had their hearts broken so many times. Of course, Virginia was the first number one seed to lose to a 16 in the first round. And the next year they won a championship. And I think Purdue is very capable of, of, of doing that, but it's all, you know, we'll, we'll wait and see, but. My um, daughter, Katie. Did, and, and anyone, anyone that's followed my, my NCAA tournament coverage over the last 20, 30 years knows that my predictions are not, you don't want to be putting any too much on, on uh, my predictions. So you that's what makes it right? being wrong is half the fun and I'm wrong a lot. Well, my daughter, Katie's big Purdue fan crush on the center. So uh, there you go. Yeah. There she, you go. He's a good I, and she'll be calling me soon after watching this. <laughs> okay, good. Good. For for good. outing her. Hey, yeah. Seth Davis, thank you, sir. Always You're good talking. Good. You're a good man. Man.